My name is Umer, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. We were supposed to have Martin Lukash back on the podcast this week to continue chatting with him about his book, The Trudeau Formula. But we weren't able to schedule an interview in time with him. We're going to try and have Martin on soon. But in this episode, I'll be chatting with Monica Mason and Mayurin Sivalingam, who are both members of Climate Justice Toronto, an organization that helped organize the climate strike in Toronto on September 27th. Thousands of Torontonians took part in the event, and there were a number of groups who were part of the coalition that helped put it together, including Fight for 15 and Fairness, Indigenous Climate Action, the United Steelworkers, Greenpeace, as well as others. I'm going to be chatting with Monica and Mayurin about the climate strike, as well as other related topics. Monica and Mayurin, welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So from September 20th to the 27th, a series of what were called climate strikes took place in cities around the world. Uh, And it's estimated that up to 6 million people took part in these actions from Seoul in South Korea to here in Toronto. So let's maybe start by chatting about the climate strike in Toronto, because you guys were involved in that. What what was your sense of it? How did it uh, come together? Um, So we started organizing the strike back in the summer, in August, with other groups that were involved. So the Fridays for Future Climate Strike Canada group that was based here, and it's also a national group called Climate Strike Canada, um, as well as other um, environmental groups as well who were in the room, including, I think it's called Climate Challenge was there, um, and there's others as well. So, And and how'd it go? It was pretty great. It was a really nice turnout. There's a lot of youth, which is very positive, I thought. Uh, A lot of university students, and of course, grown-ups as well, and different uh, organizations also showed up. I've heard at least, tw- uh, I think like 20,000 people were marching, mm-hmm. but that's apparently like low estimate. So at least around 20,000 in Toronto alone. Yeah. So I keep hearing different estimates. Yeah. And it's hard, I feel yeah. like, to even count something like that because people come and go. It starts off with a certain number. That's w- So I hear the low end is like 20,000. Yeah. And then I've heard as much as 80. Something like that. That's what we've heard too, yeah. in terms of estimates. But what about just in general? What what, what was your, your sentiment in coming out of it? You know, like, did it exceed your expectations? I think definitely like watching it be planned and then seeing it happen. It was so much bigger than yeah. we've seen previously in the previous Fridays for Future strikes mm-hmm. that were ongoing before. So Yeah. And I think also when you're like hearing about the planning of it, it can seem small and intimate. And then when you're there to see that crowd, it's like it reached the amount of people that it reached, it feels sort of rewarding. Yeah. Because it could feel, I think, small and like intimate because you're just dealing with this few amount of people, right? But then when you see it mobilized that way, I think that was kind of beautiful to watch. So when I was there, um, first thing, like I wasn't expecting that many people. I was yeah. like genuinely impressed. 
it wasn't just like the the same people we see at the same rallies, right? Yeah. But the way I tried to get a sense of the scale was I stood in one place. I went to the the front of the rally. I stood in one place and I started recording it. And it took an hour and 20 minutes for everyone to walk by. Oh, wow. I wasn't expecting it to be an hour and 20 minutes. I would not have, you know, sat yeah. there to record it if, if I thought it was going to take <laughs> that long. So kudos to the organizers. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And to all the people who showed up. So what went, I guess, give us a sense of what, um, what was involved in the organizing. So, so we had the coalition that had been meeting earlier in the summer, um, mm -hmm. and it was about, I would say, like 30 people representing the different groups in the room. Um, and again, you mentioned that you've been to previous or you've seen previous Fridays for Future rallies and they're... Well, I haven't been to those. And I want to ask you about that. I mean, I, I just mean like uh, rallies in the city for various issues, including climate rallies that I've been to. But yeah. Actually, let's maybe this is a good point. So what is uh, Fridays for the Future? So Fridays for the Future, uh, I think, is a movement inspired by Greta Thunberg, who's the Swedish teen climate activist who started striking every Friday um, because she wanted climate action and no one was doing anything. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of high school students are really inspired by her, especially younger generation, um, and have been striking on Fridays and not going to school and mm -hmm. going to rallies, um, often at Queen's Park in the yeah. past few months. Right. So, and then you were saying, so compared to the ones that have been taking place. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So how many um, people have those Fridays for the Future rallies brought out? So when I went to one in May, it was about 300 people. And I, you know, you do kind of see the same people often at these rallies a lot of the time. So um, that was why this was really exciting, as you mentioned, to see a whole bunch of new faces, a lot of people there. Um, and so the work that went into it was interesting because that started about a month before and we didn't know what to expect at all. So, Wow, you guys organized that in a month? Somewhere around that, yeah. Yeah. That, I'm even more impressed. <laughs> um, so let's maybe zoom out a little bit and talk about the, the movement as a whole. So you mentioned uh, Greta Thunberg. So what, who is this person? And uh, and why did I see lots of, you know, school children holding signs that said, I'm with Greta at the rally? Yeah, so uh, Greta Thunberg is a young Swedish student who started, so I think she's mentioned that at the age of eight, she got to know about climate change and hearing about how drastic the effects of it have been on our planet. And she felt that Considering how bad it is, to her it seemed odd that the grown-ups and the people in charge weren't treating it with the urgency that it sort of asked for. So she found that odd. And then I think she went through depression and she just had a lot of anxiety towards it. And then as a student, she felt that the only thing she can do is do the one thing that's not, that is expected of her, which is to go to school. Right, so every Friday she would go to I think the Swedish Parliament and then sit in protest, and that's how she started. Before she was just a girl from Sweden, and then people started taking notice that she was protesting every Friday. So little by little, people started joining her, and then eventually, students around the world noticed this as well, and then they rallied around her, and all of that went into what we had on the twentieth, where people around the world were sort of inspired by her. 
and saying that a young person, I think when she first stood at parliament, she was, I think, 13. Hmm. So for a couple of years now, she's been doing this every Friday. And that, I think that inspires a lot of students, but as also people like me, people like Monica, it's just inspired everybody to feel like, to be like, if she's doing this, then we have to do our part as well. Right. I would add to that, that there's been some criticism of Greta um, after this and that she is sort of being picked up by the media in a way that other people who've been doing this work uh, haven't been picked up, especially Mm -hmm. like indigenous youth. So here in Canada, Autumn Pelletier, who's um, a teenager, has been doing, and a water protector, has been doing a lot of work on this for a couple of years as well. And Mm -hmm. so it's interesting to see how Greta gets picked up by the media, but other people don't often. So Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that she is a white girl. And I feel like that's more digestible to people and they can relate to that more, which is, I think, why she blew up as much as she did, even though people have been doing this before her, like you mentioned, indigenous people here as well have been doing this too. Yeah, but that's not the only kind of criticism she's been getting, right? I guess in terms of uh, from she's gotten criticism from the left and she's gotten criticism from the right too, which is which is less uh maybe less civil less civil and more it's disgusting defamatory yeah defamatory disgusting yeah Yeah. unwarranted yeah um i was doing a little bit research into her and to be honest i haven't really been following the development of this stuff until very recently so i'm just learning about her and about the the global climate strike movement that's developing around her but obviously not she's obviously not the only participant and not the only leader mm-hmm. but um yeah so uh, from what i understand one of the pieces of trivia that i learned is that she is related to a man named Swante Arrhenius he was a chemist who actually discovered the greenhouse effect that you know the impact that carbon has in the atmosphere and that he he discovered in 1896. Whoa. And I think she is the, r- rather, uh, Swante Arrhenius was the cousin of her great-great-grandmother. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So I guess, you know, she has that in her blood, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So Greta starts going to the Swedish parliament, and then other people start doing this as well. And then you guys are also involved people here in the climate justice movement become involved. Uh, and then you pull off something that's very impressive, uh, not just here, but across the country, around the world. Um, okay, so why was it decided that this week, uh, you know, from September 20th to 27th, that that would be the date? I don't, I don't know the September 20th origin, although the UN climate summit happened, the youth around climate summit time. happened that week or weekend mm-hmm. um but in in canada i think the 27th was chosen because there was a quebecois labor action yeah place and that we didn't want to overshadow is my understanding but i have to yeah and i think right now <laughs> in solidarity the rest of canada joined them the mm-hmm. week after instead of doing it on the 20th so if you notice that uh, the rest of the world did it on the 20th but canada did it on the 27th right which is because of what monica just mentioned but I think it, I think the reason for that time frame, I think again, is because the UN uh, climate summit was around that time. So right, it was on the twenty third, right? Yeah. So I think that's why they picked that specific time. Right. Um, and I don't know if this was an accident or not, 
But I also learned that September 27th is the date on which Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was published in uh, 1962, I think. So there's okay. another piece of trivia. This is all oh, from wow. my <laughs> yeah, research from just my <laughs> research over the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if you guys had any discussions about that or if it was just a an accident. Wow, I'm just like the universe, like oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, coming together. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. What else? What else? Should, where, where else should we go from here? What do you guys think? I think that there's also planned future rallies as well. And from what I recall, I think the next one is in 2020 around the time of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Hmm. I think that's when the next uh, sort of global rally is meant to happen. When is Earth Day again? Sorry. I should know this. Uh, it's in April. April. Yeah. April's 20th. Yeah. Something like I've, I've just learned to ignore Earth Day. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Right? Yeah. Like real, oh real environmentalists don't take that seriously, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's when McDonald's and the rest of the corporate, the corporate world, world starts. Yeah. yeah. They, they try doing their part. Yeah. Quote unquote. Yeah. I, I think uh, Sunrise in the States, which is the youth climate movement there, is planning something this fall as well. Yeah. And I don't know if Climate Strike Canada is going to do something this fall. But yeah. And But I'm expecting, or I guess that um, probably the Fridays for the future stuff will continue to happen. There will be high school students congregating at Queen's Park every Friday. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I think it's um, once a month is the big one. And then I think mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. people can do their own actions every, every Friday. Friday. Yeah. yeah. All right. So kids are you, you're telling the children to skip school every Friday. Is that the it? Children are skipping there's, school. Yeah, there's no way to tell them that. They're, they're doing, doing it on us. their own. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they are doing it for us. Yeah. I, I, well, I guess for themselves and for future generations. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, it is interesting that um, to see young people being politicized. And it's not only around this issue. I mean, in Ontario, we saw, I think it was in April, high school walkouts to protest Doug Ford's cuts to, to education. education. Yeah. And when we were discussing that on the podcast, I, I think I said something about the fact that when I was a teenager, I certainly was not being politicized. I was not engaging in walkouts. Mm-hmm. I was playing video games at home. Um, so it's really actually inspiring to see. I'm sure that these high school students are also playing video games at home, but they're finding time to become politicized um, yeah. and to engage in these uh, these kinds of actions. Yeah, and I think when the types of things that are happening around them is at the scale that it's at, I think it's almost unavoidable and you hear it all the time and you can experience it firsthand. I think that sort of pushes them to do this sort of activism. For example, I know that a lot of, in terms of the education cuts, there are a lot of uh, high school students in grade 12, they're trying to graduate, but they can't graduate because they can't get enough credits because the classes that they need to graduate aren't available. So when you're facing something like that, it's not just a matter of, oh, do I want to show up at a rally? It's almost like, if I don't show up, I might not be able to graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I this also speaks to the mainstreaming of environmentalism right because i think when i was growing up when i was in high school uh in the early 2000s like yeah there was a concern for the environment but it was still kind of a niche somewhat niche in the sense that well people who care about the environment are hippies 
and you know that you had to be a particular sort of person and so it, the the fact that um you have larger and larger scales of people who are getting involved and interested really shows that the work that has gone into promoting concern for the environment is having an effect yeah and i think a great deal of that has to do with the fact that we're doing a lot of alliance building and trying to find not just trying to find it's showing the uh i can't find the word for it but the intersectionality i guess of climate change and how it affects not just directly the environment but it affects migrants it affects kids it affects indigenous people it affects the working class and it's showing that these other issues that affect that matters to you a lot it's made worse by climate change so i mm. feel like because we're able to now before it used to just be oh we got to protect the environment we got to protect the oceans we got to protect the animals but now we're able to say we need to do that and you're allowed to bring in a larger coalition of other organizations who might not have thought that climate change is important to them as their own personal issue but now they can see that this makes my issue a lot worse so of course i'm going to want to join and make try to help this issue as well yeah so for a long time environmentalism was like personal consumption and it's yeah. still like that we're at the point now where we're at a tipping point of between is environmentalism reducing your personal footprint? Is it not driving as much? Is it turning off the lights? Like we were all in environmental clubs in high school that mm -hmm. were focused on recycling, right? And now we're getting to a point where we're viewing it as more of a holistic issue. And there's actually a struggle within the environmental movement right now about are we focused on promoting a carbon tax? Are we focused on individual solutions mm -hmm. um, and market-based solutions? Or are we looking at it in a whole other way? That's really intentional. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we're now seeing, I think we're seeing a shift towards a more holistic approach than just individual habit changes. Yeah. Yeah. And within the climate strike, actually, something that was really interesting was that the the national climate strike, Canada, wide climate strike had a set of demands um, and not to spill some tea here, <laughs> but <laughs> in the, in the internal Toronto uh, climate strike, we actually came out with different demands mm. um, that were a little bit more specific. Um, so I don't know, I can, I definitely have a list of them here um, that, so the ones that our group specifically put forward were indigenous rights and sovereignty, the protection of forest, land and water sources, a shift to publicly owned renewable energy and reducing national carbon emission by 65% by 2030, zero emissions by 2040, a $15 minimum wage for all and higher taxation on the rich, universal public services like healthcare and dental care, free university and college, housing as a human right and free public transit, as well as justice, justice for migrants and refugees, allowing status for all. That's in, that includes putting an end to deportations and allowing for full public access to public services. So those were uh, actually very different demands than the rest of the national uh, climate strikers. And that was something that we pushed for, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah, it's what you guys were saying, that it has to do with the fact that the environment and concern for the environment is no longer, you know, it's not like, oh, it's because I like trees and mm -hmm. I like animals. It's like, well, we were able to appreciate the fact that the environment is connected to so many other issues and that we can't deal with it on its own that it has to be dealt with as part of the broader social landscape that that we're all a part of um the other thing about the environment that happens and used to happen a lot more but still to an extent does is that it gets treated as kind of apolitical right um 
And well, it's not left or right, right?、Mm -hmm. Like it's something that affects everyone. So we shouldn't be politicizing the environment, you know. And actually, even the Green Party of Canada, what's their? It's their slogan, right? Like <laughs> we're not left, we're not right, we're we're forward, <laughs> forward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah.、Uh, so okay. So I, I'm guessing you guys have some feelings about that. So、uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. So I really like. I'm really. And again, we're seeing this within the environmental movement, even planning a strike. Right. How much are we losing the politics of it? What are we calling for?、Mm -hmm. Are we calling for no more plastic straws? Like what? You know, even we've seen the NDP shift towards this recently because half, like half a year ago, less than half a year ago, they were talking about plastic straws in their fundraising emails. Right.、Mm -hmm. So. We have to make sure that these strikes have a have a framework that they're operating on and have clear principles and clear asks, and otherwise it does get lost a little bit. I think, yeah. In terms of political or apolitical, I、uh, and I don't know. I don't see it as a. I don't think it is a left or right issue, but all of us somehow it's turned into、hmm. a left or right issue, and also we have.、Uh, Because of Maxine Bernier and the People Party of Canada, they've don't believe in climate change, and because of and that, and they're on the right, and they're on the right, the far right, and now because of that, it's turned into a political issue. Where if you're gonna talk about it, if you're gonna show any awareness about it, now you are considered a third party or something. If you're part of an activist group and if you're trying to fight for climate change, whereas before it was like, of course you're gonna fight for climate change because it's something that affects all of us. But now because one section of society is is saying they don't believe in it, well, hasn't hasn't the right always sort of played that game? They've they've kind of led the climate denialism, right? Yeah,、like、funded by big money. And like, unfortunately, climate change is an anti-corporate issue, right? Especially in、mm -hmm. Canada, where,、um, like, the way that in 1993 we didn't even have a, like a burgeoning oil sand sector, and that was completely subsidized the growth of that by the Chrétien government, right?、Mm -hmm. um, and we still subsidize it. So, and we have this really heavy bitumen that we pull out of the ground, and then we have to ship abroad to refine. So, especially in Canada, like, this is a very anti-corporate issue. This is like,、mm -hmm. are we? Are we on the side of big corporations killing our world, or are we, you know, fighting for everyday people and livable future? And to add on to that, when I say it's not a left or right issue, I think the right has adopted this corporate framework, right? So it shouldn't be a left or right issue, but somehow a lot of the right has adopted this corporate framework where they've—I don't think they actually believe it's climate change is not real. I think they just are going along with corporate、uh, influences saying that. It isn't. No, man. They. Yeah. <laughs> I think they don't actually believe that climate change is not real.、Uh, yeah, I don't know. People, I mean,、yeah. for for example, a lot of the oil industry, like for example, ExxonMobil, they've done re their scientists have done research back in the 1980s, and they've proven that climate change is real and that it's man-made. But they hid that research because they know that that would affect their bottom line. Yeah, so, and then they funded,、uh, despite knowing. That, that climate change is real. They funded groups that were promoting the idea that climate change was not real, and you know, spreading misinformation and yeah. I think you're getting at something interesting here, which we can see right where、mm -hmm. we see the right wing is kind of like this populist movement right now,、um, and at the same time, the right wing interests are very pro corporate.、Um, mm -hmm. Like you know, Shear is meeting behind closed doors with. 
um, oil executives mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. Um, so there is kind of a split culturally, I think, on the right where we want, you know, people who are might be identified culturally as right wing mm-hmm. should should sort of start to see and open their eyes. And you know what I mean? And maybe we can there's a way we can uh I don't know, broach those two worlds, especially if we have a just transition for workers, Mm -hmm. like first and Mm -hmm. foremost. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you can have people who who see themselves as, you know, small C conservatives, who it's, uh, you know, imperative that we win over, right? Otherwise, we're not going to actually win win on this issue. Mm -hmm. And I think someone like Bernie Sanders has done a really good job Mm -hmm. of, of doing that, you know, of actually going to coal mining communities and saying, look, when I say that we need to transition away from coal, I'm not trying to like beat up on you guys as workers. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that we need to get people working in, in industries that aren't polluting yeah. um, and, you know, and getting the workers on side. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the, the discussion in Canada hasn't gone as far. But then you guys mentioned the NDP and they did recently start talking about the Green New Deal. So what are those kind of policy proposals like that? I mean, I guess, you know, everybody's for the Green New Deal, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that, but... Or not, not <laughs> I guess, not the Conservative Party, but... Yeah. Uh, even Trudeau, what was his proposal? One, he he released uh, something about planting two million planting trees. trees. Yeah. <laughs> eliminating plastic. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. what a Justin tweet, eh? I yeah. feel like they know that the Green New Deal, the name is popular. Right. So they're again co-opting that frame of the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the liberals are anywhere close to meeting the standards that the IPCC is asking for or what most Green New Deal activists are asking for. Yeah, so what would a, a Green New Deal ask for? I guess many of the demands that you guys laid out as part of the Climate Justice Toronto, I mean, that that seems like it would be part of it, right? Uh, Housing demands, demands for good jobs. Is that one of the things I heard? Free transit was one of them. Yeah, $15 minimum wage, which I think to, to, you know, put a label on that and explicitly put that in our demands and have that published in media Mm -hmm. is great and fantastic. uh yeah and yeah sorry go ahead no yeah free public transit uh universal health care uh i think the the ndp part of their platform does address some of this i just don't i don't feel like they're doing a good enough job of messaging it for example public transportation and eliminating student debt I think most people would love that, but I don't think they're getting that across as well as they could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how are you guys going to pay for this? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, to begin, even before even addressing that question, I think that's sort of a right wing framing of how are you going to pay for these things that are going to help most Canadians, where when we talk about fighting endless wars or if we talk about uh, reducing taxes for the rich, we never ask how are we going to pay right and uh, i think that mindset has got to go because one thing is i think we can pay for it and and it's not just a matter of how are we going to pay for it we have to do these things to mitigate the things that climate the climate crisis is doing we have to do these things to mitigate those risks right mm-hmm. and i think there are ways to pay for it uh for example uh the amount of money that the rich hide in tax havens, 
if you were, if all of that were actually taxed the appropriate way, there would be enough money to pay for free public transit all across Canada. And that's just by taxing them what's already the tax the tax rates that are already in place. If they weren't hiding their money and they were taxed accordingly, that alone would be enough money to pay for free public transit. So imagine if we were to increase the marginal tax rate for the rich, how much more money we could get. If we were to shift military budget into more into funding public uh, things regarding climate action, how much money that could bring in. I think there are a lot of ways that we can bring in money. But if you increase the tax rates on the rich, don't they have more incentive to hide their money in tax havens? <laughs> <laughs> then we just got to get rid of the, two, the loopholes, right? I just, I just, case in point, it's like the LNG industry in BC. And we talked about the NDP like just now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that I think the federal NDP can't be against for certain reasons, obviously, because it's a BC NDP provincially that is putting this forward. Mm-hmm. But the LNG, which is liquefied natural gas industry in um, BC, involves like fracking natural gas out of the ground and then pushing it through a pipeline all the way to the BC coast and then, you know, uh, freezing it at minus 600 degrees Celsius and then shipping it on a tanker to China. Minus 600 degrees, isn't that impossible? I thought... Okay, maybe it's not. Minus 273 <laughs> degrees was the coldest anything could be. I'm just... I'm just uh, Sorry, no, it's here. fine. It, I understand. <laughs> it's just... A, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but basically... So for the cost of all this is ridiculous, but we are subsidizing that industry for $5.5 billion. So I think it's just generally like if we're talking about money and where money goes and how are we going to pay for it, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that's already happening that is completely non... It doesn't even make sense logically, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is for 400 jobs in Kitimat, BC. Like -hmm. like there's definitely ways we can create those jobs that are not ridiculous and wasting money and killing our planet. So, Okay, so on that note, maybe we can wrap up this part of the discussion and then continue on in the next segment. What do you guys think? Sure. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so I'm going to continue chatting with uh, Monica and Mayuran here. And the next part of our discussion will be made available to our Patreon supporters within the next week. Remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and becoming a patron. Our patrons get access to exclusive content and they help us cover the costs of producing the Oats for Breakfast podcast. Thanks again for tuning in and... I'll see you next time.